Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and uh, welcome to my favorite time of the week. And I'm very fortunate this week to have Major General James Cowan, CBE, DSO. And James is the CEO of the Halo Trust. And the Halo Trust, we're going to be talking about in a minute, but a charity made famous uh, when Princess Diana was helping clear some of the mines. But James has now expanded that, diversified it, particularly in this COVID crisis. Uh, James has a fascinating career uh, in the army. He's been out of the army for five years, um, but a, a whole series of operational tours, war fighting in some very difficult situations in Afghanistan and in Iraq, but also just a, a very interesting life uh, to tell. So James, great to have you on board on the series. Welcome. Hello, Jonathan. Nice to see you. And uh, do tell us a bit about the, those who don't know about the Halo Trust as a charity. Um, what it traditionally has done historically, but now how you're diversifying, particularly in, in the COVID and other things that are going on. What are, you, what are you involved in now? So Halo's been going since 1988. Uh, it was founded by two uh, eminent soldiers um, and it grew from small beginnings in Afghanistan uh, and it now is in 25 countries around the world. We've got about 8,500 staff, uh, the vast majority of whom are locally recruited people, but we have about 180 international staff as well. And it's a really good mix actually of um, the humanitarian uh, with quite a few ex-military people uh, involved as well. And our job has really evolved, as you said, from clearing Soviet era landmines uh, to the new conflict. So we have two sorts of program really, post-conflict in countries like Cambodia or Angola or Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe, where we're clearing up still those landmines because they're still extremely lethal and effective. And then uh, countries that I would class as being in conflict, places like Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and Somalia. So um, there we have a very different uh, problem because it's much more dangerous. Uh, the problem is a much more uh, toxic mix of different types of weapons. Uh, it's often in, in an urban environment. Uh, and instead of being subject to a kind of rules-based international order, uh, we're dealing with non-state actors who don't follow the international rules. So it's really very challenging. And then, as you mentioned in the last few months, of course, we overlay over the top of all of that um, COVID. So it's been a really interesting challenge and something I've thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah. And, and, and there's been a lot of changes. I mean, obviously... Um biggest change in a hundred years with COVID-19 and, and its impact will ripple on for years, both economically and personally. Uh, you've got people all over the world. I'm doing a, a conference call with uh, 80 CEOs and leaders in Zimbabwe. And, and they say, look, you know, we've now got five to 600 cases in Zimbabwe uh, and five deaths, but we're, we know what's coming or we don't know what's coming. We're frightened. We don't know what's going to happen. But you've uh, taken this crisis and you've pivoted and adapted to it while other NGOs were running for the hills 
you've kept your guys in some really, they're all in dodgy places anyway. It's where the war zones are. But you've, you've just had to stay. And I really admire you for that. And also, you're one of the few uh, NGOs that has actually supported the merger, as it's come, of FC, uh, FCO and DFID, which is not popular with many people because you're, you're focused on the outcome rather than rearranging the deck chairs. I think that's your term. And let's not get caught up with arguing about rearranging the deck chairs in the ship. Let's focus on what we're trying to do for people in the countries. Do you want to talk a bit about all that? Yeah, so I think that um, we took the decision to pivot onto COVID because we're a humanitarian organisation and it's our job to um, immediately get onto the needs of our beneficiaries. Um, the H in HALO stands for hazardous. You know, we, we are an organisation that's culture is about uh, being there in austerity in hazardous conditions. So I'm so proud of all my people who actually have stayed the course. Um, I, yeah, okay, some left um, in, in other NGOs, but you know, we work with a lot of partner organisations and you know, I salute them as well. There's a lot of fantastic work going on out there. We've all been very, um, I suppose, focused on the domestic crisis, but uh, I think this is far more of a global problem and it would, uh, I think it would serve the United Kingdom well to begin to look at this global problem and put Global Britain out there addressing this. So yeah. that really sort of leads into your second point about the merger. Um, I support it because I think it's the democratic right of any government to arrange its ministries in the way it wants. But I support it because I think we can achieve better outcomes. I think DFID, fantastic in many ways, actually did not do um, the, 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 the role that we have especially well. It wasn't particularly focused on weapon control. It has one small landmine clearance uh, program, but it doesn't really look at small arms, doesn't really look at armed violence reduction. It doesn't really look at uh, reintegration of former fighters. And I'd like to see much more of that in the new ministry. Similarly, you know, we, we have a big program at the moment in Angola focused on uh, biodiversity. And I'd like to see the new ministry focused on climate and biodiversity. You know, what we're doing in Angola is really very exciting. Uh, there's many minefields in the Okavango Delta. Um, minefields breed poverty because communities get cut off and poverty breeds poaching and poaching means the complete collapse of ecosystems. So we're working with other um, charities to first clear the landmines and then restore the biodiversity and it's a really exciting project. Uh, I was um, fortunate enough to take Prince Harry out to uh, our location there in September and he saw it firsthand the work we're doing. So this is why I support the new ministry. Yeah, fantastic. And, and have you found both Diana's sons are, are supportive? So, um, you know, I think as ever with the royal family, um, each, each member supports different charities. And Prince Harry has been a fantastic supporter to the Halo Trust. Um, in, in his new circumstances, he's uh, uh, promised to continue supporting Halo and continues to do great work for us. But what is so nice about him is that he has that very human ability to engage with people. Yeah, I was able to do that as a soldier, and he still does that to this day. And we're just very lucky to have him. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he shows leadership qualities that we look up to. And in this time of uh, global pandemic, there's a desperate need for good leadership. Uh, and my own personal opinion is we're we're lacking it in many of the politicians. Some come across uh, quite well, and like the, uh, the chancellor, I think Rishi Junak comes across well but um to find good leaders in politics and good leaders in 
business at this time is more important than ever. And I think he's a good role model. Um, what, what about um, inspiring leadership role models for you? Who, who would you pick out as, as a couple of the people that you've been inspired by? And yeah. what, what were their qualities? So I sort of have a, you might call it a, 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 an unusual background. In fact, my, my father's family, um, uh, Scottish, um, they are a sort of Scottish 19th century uh, industrial revolution family, um, very much committed to, um, with, with a strong social conscience. Um, and, you know, just a, a little historical fact that they, they ran um, a paper making business in just uh, south west of Edinburgh. And during the Napoleonic Wars, it was taken over by the government and many French prisoners of war were housed there. And my, my ancestor was so appalled by the treatment of those prisoners that at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, um, he, he erected a monument to, to them. And it's still there to this day in Pennycook. And it says, all men are brethren. You know, and for me, he's a kind of a role model, a non-military role model of, of how uh, that humanitarian um, duty is in all of us. And he continued that work. He became a member of parliament and was um, a, a very distinguished um, reformer in Scotland during the 19th century. And that sort of feeling, that liberal um, reforming piece is still present in me and my family to this day. Yeah, all men, I, I, I like that. And it reminds me of Marcus Aurelius's quote, is, you know, what's good for the bee is good for the hive. And, and this idea that we, we're an ecosystem, as you were talking about in the... Uh, in the Okavango Delta there. And we've got to think about our impact on other people. And more than ever, even though people are becoming more local rather than global as they worry about infection, I think we, we need to solve many of our problems on a global level and work well together. So, um, yeah, what was the, the second character you were going to mention? So I was brought up, my father was a soldier, and so my parents were traveling a lot and I was sent off to boarding school at you know, the age of seven and that typical thing. Um, and so my grandparents um, really were very involved in, in my upbringing. And my grandfather had commanded a brigade in Normandy and was a, a, a general after the war. And I think he was quite affected by the, the war. Um, my uncle was a Royal Marine and was killed in, in Cyprus during the, the Cyprus emergency in 1958. And I think my, my grandfather, was in some ways uh, who had survived the war himself in a far more intense conflict was very affected by that my grandmother meanwhile um was that unusual thing she'd, she'd been to oxford in in 1919 at the end of the first world war um and she she had that strong sense of um both being an intellectual and a woman and uh, that gave me a sense of the the need for uh, in our age and she did it well before her age, uh, to let women come on and empower them and to give them that opportunity. So those two were very significant role models to me in my early life. Wow, that's really special. You talked about him being very affected by it. Do you, do you think he had PTSD or was he just very, very just deeply affected by the deaths and the, the mayhem that went on? I think it's really hard to know. Um, you know, a good friend of mine is, Professor Sir Simon Wesley, and you know, he, 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 he unpacks the nature of PTSD very effectively. And I think it's too easy to bundle up the whole load of different issues in, under one heading. And you know, I was quite young and you know, he was of his era and, and didn't necessarily want to talk about it particularly, although he did in, in other ways, I suppose, in, through his body language. 
Yeah. But I suspect, yes, as the answer, that you probably did in some shape or form. Yeah. And what were the sort of, you've got the, the liberal values you've got, you know, um, female empowerment and, and intellectual learning. But, but what were the, the, the qualities that you took as a leader that you've used during your time serving um, in, in various different capacities in the military, but now as the CEO of the Halo Trust? What, if you were to pick out two or three leadership values and, that you took? So my, my sort of um, unifying purpose in life is a sense of public service. You know, and I, I, both as a soldier uh, and now running a humanitarian organization, have a very strong sense of public service. I'm, I, I suppose I'm quite unusual in some ways that I have a very strong sense of patriotism and pride in my country. And yet I also believe in, in liberal values. And I don't think those things are always easily reconciled in this day and age. But I do think there's a kind of strong, silent majority who aren't especially radical, who aren't very vocal about these things. Mm. Um, but to your question, I think that you need to be able to bring three things to leadership, a, 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 an intellectual um, baseline. You need to think through a problem carefully and you need to have a sophisticated understanding of what you're doing. Secondly, I think you need an emotional uh, commitment. You need to be able to inspire people. You need to be able to talk to them directly and make them really think, yes, I want to follow this man or this woman and I believe in what they're saying. And the third thing is it needs to be grounded in the physical. You need to have a practical application because I do think a lot of people can convince themselves. Many people are very convincing, but they're actually very wrong. And there needs to be a sort of physical, practical aspect to what you do uh, because it's easy to take things off in a very, very wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think, wasn't it Rommel who said there are four types of leader, the, uh, the, the stupid but hardworking, the stupid and lazy, the, um, the bright and hardworking and the bright and lazy. And he said, take the stupid and hardworking uh, and actually in his days, he said, shoot them. He said, because they'll take you miles in the wrong directions. And he said, take the very bright and lazy ones and promote them to the highest ranks because they'll get the job done and then they'll have time to relax and enjoy life. Um, I'm not sure whether you uh, uh, have a view on that. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think what I love about, I mean, take, take military leaders is how different they are. I mean, you know, the psychology of military incompetence says that all military leaders have a moustache and look like Colonel Blimp. I mean, what I find so fascinating in my military life is how different people could be from sort of Bill Rollo through to Graham Lamb. I mean, you really couldn't imagine two more different people and yet friends, you know, and able to function together. So I think, um, yes, you need variety. You need the ability to disagree, but you also need some sort of unifying purpose that sees you through to where you want to end up. Yeah, and, and during your time, and we'll talk about this in uh, when we go into a bit of your life, but you, you've had the good fortune to work for some uh, people who are well respected from uh, Carter to Parker to McChrystal um, and, and a whole range of others. Um, I, I don't believe in the sort of great man theory and I'm a great believer of the incomplete leader with the complete team. But, but what, what's been your view of some of the qualities of, of the best military leaders that you've come across? If there's two or three things that stood out for you, what, yeah. what, what, what do you take from so, that? So I think the British disease in military leadership is uh, a sort of self-invented quality. And I think famously, um, 
you know, Corelli Barnett's Desert Generals shows that to the full. The, the British military did not have a unifying uh, philosophy or, or, or uh, quality of uh, doctrine to it that allowed it to unify around how it was going to do business. And it thrashed around too much. And I think that that disease continued and it didn't really get resolved until Field Marshal Bagnall in the late 1980s. And I do think that that capacity to think through a problem and apply the solution is really important. So I, I fear that, you know, again, it happened with the British deployment in Helmand. It was a brigade isolated on its own, not really integrated properly into the broader campaign. And was my great fortune, nothing to do with me particularly, uh, but I was within a team. You know, I was the brigade commander. My divisional commander was Nick Carter. Uh, my uh, three-up was Nick Parker. And um, my, my four-star was Stan McChrystal. And Stan McChrystal, you know, he had a plan. He was charismatic. It was practical. You know, he, he, we all admired and liked him. And we all worked the same mission. And the same was true for Parker and Carter as well. And I think that sense of teamwork at those four levels, one, two, three, and four star, was fundamental to uh, the nature of my time in Helmand. But it isn't just at that level. You know, I think a commander, you know, without a staff is like a sort of flower without water. It looks pretty for a few days and then the petals fall off. You know, you need to have a staff that understands you and you understand it, you command it, coordinates, and you know, that capacity to drive through meant a huge amount. I was very fortunate as a brigade commander to have two outstanding chiefs of staff, both of whom are very senior officers now, Colin Weir and James Bowder. And similarly, as a divisional commander, um, again, I had Rowley Walker and Zach Stenning, and you know, four, four of the most impressive young officers I've ever served with. I call them young, they're all very senior now, but uh, they are uh, people that the army is very blessed to have. It's interesting you mentioned Zach. Zach was in the Green Hours with, with me, and, uh, and I remember him coming along as a young officer on an attachment, and even as a young man, he was very impressive. So I, I've lost touch of where he's at now. Is he a, a brigadier or a general now, is he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. very good. Um, okay. Sorry, you, 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 you were going to say? No, I was just going to say, yes, they are, and they're all thriving in the army. And um, you know, if, if I have any tiny legacy towards this, this army, which I admire so much. It is that those four characters are, are coming on and I very much hope they, they go to the very top. Yeah. And talking about the British disease and, and the need for unifying strategy and, and intellectual military thought, you talked about back when we were earlier talking about uh, General Sir Rupert Smith. You know, what do you think those two contributed to, to uh, British military thinking that still is with us today? Well, I think that, that you know, Field Marshal Bagnall um, essentially took a, a very, I'm afraid, very amateurish army in, in, the, in the 80s and, and gave it a sense of purpose. And he, he understood what it was to function at the formation level. Uh, he understood the operational level of war as the gearing mechanism between the strategic and the tactical. Uh, and that fed down to Rupert Smith, who famously um, you know, took those tactical notes into his battle plan for uh, the first Gulf War. And when I took command of the 3rd Division, and one of the first things I did was to refer back to those notes and to think through how I wanted to uh, run this division. Because mm. we were coming, it was the period as we were coming out of Afghanistan, the army was going to head back from being deployed to an expeditionary footing, and I wanted to think through how the division should fight, how it should operate, 
and Rupert Smith, who I don't know at all well. Uh, he doesn't know me at all, I should think. But, um, you know, I drew a lot of inspiration from that. Yeah, great. And then also we were talking earlier of um, some of the inspiring leaders that you and I know and admire uh, also have a humanity and a humility about them. They're not robots. And, and they admit when they got things wrong. Um, what would be uh, your story of a, of a mistake you've made as a leader uh, and, and what you learned from it? Oh, well, where to begin, Jonathan? I mean, my, my career is littered with um, examples of, of, you know, quite heroic failures. Um, I mean, to, where, let's start with one. Uh, so when I, when I was commanding the Black Watch in, in, on Operation Bracken, uh, we deployed a huge amount of media interest in what we were doing. It was coincident with the period of uh, regimental amalgamation, so politically controversial in a domestic sense, and then the war in Iraq was controversial. And um, someone close to me uh, sent me an email saying, how are you coping with all this attention? And I said, well, it's not at all helpful. Um, all this speculation about our deployment from Basra up to Fallujah uh, is drawing um, the, the terrorists who are like bees to the honeypot. And I thought no more of it, sent off the email. And a couple of days later, we, you know, sadly taken some quite significant casualties and uh, front page of the Daily Telegraph was, you know, Blackwatch Insider foresaw casualties. And um, of course, I actually didn't connect the two things. Um, and I was thinking, who on earth was this? Anyway, it subsequently transpired to be me. Uh, and it was then um, the, the Scottish National Theatre then turned the whole episode into a play. And for years afterwards, I was kind of um, cursed by the fact that uh, my little email, which was only four lines long, was turned into a series of letters. And I'm the only person in the play who, who actually is, a, is someone, the rest are sort of generic soldiers. Um, a series of letters from me to my wife, um, basically expanding on the initial email, but then, you know, cursing Tony Blair, uh, you know, damning the whole war in Iraq, a really a real political manifesto, which I hadn't said at all. But anyway, so... Moral of the story is, you know, be careful what you say and, and to whom. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. And um, we, can, we can weave in some other uh, amusing stories because soldiers um, and officers, and I'm sure the staff you have in, in an NGO like the Halo Trust are, are often in very stressful situations where the tension is palpable. And, and of course, it goes on for days, weeks, months. Uh, and it needs to be broken at times by good humour. Can you think back to any lovely, amusing or bizarre stories in your time in Halo or your time uh, as a serving army officer? Well, I suppose the, the big distinction between being a soldier and being a humanitarian is that one is a humanitarian organisation and the other is not. Um, and, but the Black Watch had a, had a prize. And so there was a guy called Charlie Hankins who'd served in in, in the Western Desert and had sadly lost both his legs. And he had set up an annual humanitarian prize for the Black Watch and um, the Charlie Hankins Award. And every year it was meant to be awarded to a, a jock who'd done something of humanitarian benefit. And it would be handed out at the, the Christmas jock's lunch. Uh, but every year uh, we'd struggle to find anyone who'd done anything good. So um, this was Fort George in the depths of winter. And uh, one of my jocks, Private McDonald's, had, um, I discovered, rescued this girl from the River Ness, uh, he dived in into the freezing River Ness just before Christmas and hoiked her out. 
come on, McDonald, this is actually really quite courageous and you're the man. So uh, he was very reluctant, quite modest <laughs> to accept the award, but eventually I sort of pushed him on the stage and uh, he went up to the microphone in front of the whole battalion and the commanding officer. I was a company commander at the time. And he said, uh, he said uh, Major Cowan wants me to accept this award, but I think you should know that uh, she was my girlfriend. We'd been to the pub for a drink. We had a row. She pushed me. I pushed her. She fell in. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, yes, that really sums up the best of, of, of the Black Watch jock. Um, honest, slightly sort of too much alcohol, but at the end of the day, doing the right thing. Yeah, uh, what a lovely story. And what about, um, before we go into your life story, what about some top tips? Uh, you know, two, two or three top practical tips for, for those in business listening um, uh, that they can take away, particularly during COVID-19, when there's lots of uncertainty, there's anxiety, what they do, don't know where they're going, uh, how long is it going to last, this kind of thing. What, what practical leadership tips would you share? So I think the first thing to do is really identify what matters. You know, I'm uh, a product of the higher command and staff course and I quite like the center of gravity analysis. What, what is the thing that really uh, you ought to care about and focus on? And it can be very different. It might be a physical thing if it, you're a tactical commander in the army, or it might be a more uh, intellectual thing if you're doing a higher level role. And you need to understand what that thing is and absolutely focus on delivering it. Um, and that brings a sort of clarity of purpose. I think you've then got to translate that clarity as a leader into a plan and therefore that relationship with your staff is the next thing I would focus on. I mentioned earlier commander's command and the staff coordinate. You've got to um, get that staff to um, formulate the plan and you've got to have the modesty, uh, the humility to listen to their advice and they may tell you that aspects of what you want to do are not possible. And they are the, the specialists and you're a generalist. That's why a general's called a general, because he's a generalist. And they have always the advantage over you. So then comes the tricky bit. You need that humility to accept their advice, but occasionally you need the courage to overrule them and do what you think is right. And then you are very alone. You know, you're, you're quite isolated and it's quite a cold, lonely place. Uh, you've just got to have the character then to see it through. That is great advice. Uh, and, and I think for me, courage, humility and discipline seem to mark out many of the inspiring leaders that I know. But firstly, the um, well, courage comes in probably twice. The courage to ask for, for feedback, for advice, the humility to listen, to genuinely listen, uh, rather than having an echo chamber where you're just getting reinforcing your own views of the world. Um, and then the courage again, as you say, to go on your own. Uh, in something you believe in that may seem impossible. Um, and then the discipline to consistently see things through and the micro habits that keep you going when in the darker nights and when things are difficult. Um, no, I, I really like those points. Thank you. Let's go on to your upbringing and, and how it shaped you in the leader you are today. Take us back to, you mentioned a bit about the family in the background there. That was fascinating. But... Um, Begin wherever you want to, and just some lessons about leadership and what you learned from it. Really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I was a pretty indifferent sort of schoolboy, um, terrible at sport. I know everyone in the army is meant to be fantastic at sport, but I'm not. 
you know, I really, my children, um, they despair of my inability to do anything sporting wise. So I wasn't very successful, I don't think. And I think one of the great problems of the British public school system is that you know, unless you're good at rugby or cricket or something, then you're not, you're not, you're, nobody catches the eye. So I didn't really thrive until um, I got into Oxford. Um, I don't think anyone expected, I remember my mother dropped her glass of sherry when she heard the news. So uh, they weren't expecting it. And, um, and I think just life really came alive for me when I got to Oxford. I, um, I, I was lucky enough to, to do modern history. Um, it's, you know, Oxford is, is so old fashioned that modern history starts with the sack of Rome by Alaric the Visigoth in 410. So it's not that modern. Um, but I had my tutor uh, was a very interesting character called Piers Mackesy. He was the son of the British general who'd uh, fought in the Norway campaign. Um, so he's quite scarred by that experience because he was, Mackesy was one of those uh, unlucky generals who'd fallen foul of Churchill. And uh, I was also taught by Michael Howard. And Michael Howard, wow. um, you know, was just the, the towering military intellectual of our age. And then, as you know, only died um, less than a year ago. Um, he taught me my special subject. And I just learned so much from that experience. Uh, and I think, therefore, I was unusual in some ways. I, I went to Sandhurst after Oxford um, with a sort of higher level understanding of, of, of the military art, uh, which is not really in, in keeping with what's required of you at Santa. So that, that was something very important to me. It was partly driven by my grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, who was himself uh, a military thinker, um, uh, having left the army in 1958 as a major general, um, taught at the Staff College and, and coached many sort of senior leaders like Roger Wheeler through their staff college exams. Oh, yeah. had a big military library, many of his books I still own. And he gave me that passion for understanding the profession of arms. Yeah, well, I remember when I was ADC to Field Marshal Lynch that Roger Wheeler was the assistant chief of the general staff. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I do remember him well. And also Mike Walker, who was a very inspiring uh, leader. I remember yeah. him rustling along the corridor once in his CNA waterproofs. And Peter Inge said, Michael, what are you doing wearing waterproofs? I just came in on my moped. Moped? Generals don't have mopeds. Well, this one does. And he went into his office. He wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to be stopped on this one. But you have this incredible collection. I mean, I've seen some libraries behind people. I'm sure that's only a, a fraction of it. Behind you, clearly uh, reading is important to you. Are you going to tell me you've read all those books or are some just probably? I've read a fair few of them. Um, yeah, I have. Um, and actually, I worked for, for uh, Phil Marshall Walker. I was his MA when he was the chief of the general staff. So, and, and that was, uh, you know, an extraordinary experience um, because he, he, he was the, the CGS on the day of 9-11. And uh, he was the acting chief of the defence staff and CD, the real CDS voice was on an overseas trip. So I remember very distinctly um, him on a visit uh, to the Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, and having to ring up. And actually Mark Sebel, who's now the Cabinet Secretary, um, was the private sector in ringing up and saying, you know, something terrible has happened. I think the CGS needs to come back and convening um, a, a, an emergency chiefs of staff meeting and that sense of trying to orientate yourself to uh, a rapidly developing situation. Mm. Um, hundreds of aircraft uh, in flight over the Atlantic, trying to make contact with them, trying to work out what exactly was happening, were they to return home? What if we couldn't contact them? You know, what were they doing? And 
then from that very, very short notice, fast moving tactical situation into the strategic thinking that led to the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. And that was a very formative experience for me uh, yeah. during the course of those two years. And you were the MA to the Chief of the General Staff, were you? Yeah, so for Gen General Walker, Mike Walker, and then to Mike Jackson. Um, so for, from 9-11 through to uh, the invasion of Iraq. You really have worked for some very legendary individuals. That's really interesting. So take us back to, you began uh, also, I love that little story about while you were waiting to go to Oxford, uh, you got some experience as a soldier. Can you just yeah. tell us about 7 UDL? So my father was uh, commanding a battalion in Northern Ireland, and um, I thought, well, you know, I need to earn some money. I was 18, and I have an English accent. Well, you know, it's not very safe in, in 1982 to get a normal job in Northern Ireland. So I, I joined the Ulster Defence Regiment uh, as a private soldier. And uh, it just taught me a huge amount about um, life at the, at the, at the bottom. Nobody tells you anything, hours of boredom, hours of doing sentry duty, um, the tedium, extreme tedium of it. And so what, I think what it taught me really was that the best leaders um, know how to explain themselves. They don't just tell people what to do. They say why something needs to be done and they keep you in the loop. And that, that need to learn, uh, to be uh, informed was so important to me as a private soldier and, and really formed my, my leadership style when I subsequently was commissioned. That's a really good point. And we were discussing earlier in business that in the financial crash in 2008, and again now in the pandemic, the CEOs that I'm working with, the better ones communicate, communicate, communicate. Like they just can't do it enough. And even if they didn't know in the financial crash, you know, things, the markets were moving so fast and things were crashing and uh, Bear Stearns and then Lehman Brothers and all the rest. But they would come out, the good leaders would come out and say, guys, it's, it's a very fluid situation. Don't know an awful lot's going on. What I do know is this, I'll keep you informed. I'll keep you on, on the purpose. And the second one is that really key thing about what the military would call purpose, mission, vision, um, commander's intent. Uh, but in, in business, it's, it's purpose. You know, why are we doing what we're doing? People can cope. I think it was Goethe with any what and how if they know a clear burning why. And, and all too often, and uh, Simon Sinek does a good one on getting to why in his book, uh, that they, you know, organizations begin like the three circles, concentric circles, that, that they, they talk about the what and the how they do things, but they don't get to the, the, the bullseye of the why they do it. And, and you clearly learn that very early on and serve you well, particularly right now in Halo, I suppose. Because your why, the very existence of your organization, and then the what and the how has got to change, hasn't it? Yeah, and one thing I learned in, in, in the military is that you've got to be able to do this in different ways at different levels. And as I got more senior, uh, I found the best way to, to explain the why was to sit down, think it through for myself, run my draft directive past the staff close to me, and then publish a directive that was in very plain English, no acronyms, none of that terrible military jargon, just plain, plain speaking, and get it in a, in a way that can be understood and intelligible to all ranks, and have a very short, very crisp directive that really sets out the why um, to every, every level of command, so that everyone can unify around that. In Halo, in the last few months, um, you know, we, we've had just the, the sheer physics of not being able to get on an airplane, 
uh, not being able to travel, quarantine. Um, that means you've got to be able to talk. And we're so blessed, in a sense, by the, the means we're talking on today, Zoom, uh, all these other platforms. And I spend my life talking to my programs, uh, just hearing how they are. And I never start by talking about work. You know, I want to hear about how they are as people. I want to hear about their families. I want to hear about the, the funny aspects of their life and the humor. And, you know, because if you look into someone's eyes and there isn't any humor, you know something's wrong. And, and at a remove, if you're talking to a very distant country, and I immediately have an alarm bell and want to get onto it and, and address the underlying cause. It's a very different world, the humanitarian one. It's a much more lonely and isolated one, and it does require a certain strength of character. So for me, managing my people is far more important, actually, uh, than uh, anything else. It's not the physics of mind clearance, it's the chemistry of that human interaction. That is very true. And how, how have you managed coping with mental health challenges uh, for some of your staff, you know, there's so many of them in so many different countries. Um, how, how can you, you know, eight, eight and a half, nine thousand staff in 26 countries, how, how can you help them when they've got mental health issues? Well, it's, it's a really uh, topical subject. And because, you know, I, I was used to the, the big corporate identity of the military, which itself had, had done mental health terribly uh, in the early 2000s, you know, I, I was on um, my second Iraq tour with General Richard Sheriff, who's a great role model to me, and he, he took up the issue of the care of the wounded uh, with great passion, and, and he, with, with great vigour, um, set about helping to reform it, and I, and I admire and salute him for that to this day. But it set in train a series of reforms that have led to a much more sophisticated approach within the military today, but it's a 40 billion pound uh, business defense and it can afford some money for this sort of thing. I, I'm running a, something that's about 100 million and um, you know, that's, that's not small, but it's much harder uh, to achieve the kind of overheads necessary to, to do this. But I've drawn a lot from my military experience. We do have some quite uh, searing cases of mine accidents or tra road traffic accidents that happen and I'm very attentive to this and you know, I mentioned him earlier, but Professor Sir Simon Wesley has been a, a major influence on me in the way I've gone about formulating it within the Halo Trust. Yeah, great. Now, um, in your sort of life, you've had some, um, some really uh, shaping moments. Uh, you've got a DSO, which is a, a, a great honour. Um, um, when I think you were commanding Task Force Hel Helmand uh, as the, the Brigade Commander of 11 Brigade, and um, in, in Afghanistan, 2009 to 10, I seem to remember. Um, but also uh, Operation Sinbad, 2006 to 7, when you were with the Black Watch in Iraq. Do you want to perhaps talk about some lessons you learned from, from that and, and how those lessons can be useful to people in business, which is a very different kind of thing right now in the middle of a crisis, and how they... Um, how they can cope with the uncertainty and the fear and the anxiety of what the future holds. Yeah, the, I mean, the Black Watch experience uh, was a real leadership test because um, we, we had been in Iraq the year before under a different commanding officer for, for the invasion of Iraq and the Black Watch had come back, it had moved from Germany to Warminster, expected to be the demonstration battalion 
and had no anticipation that it would be going back to Iraq. So we, we, when we were told we were going at three weeks' notice, you know, that, that, was a, that was a big leadership thing, to get people geared up and focused. Um, I'm really proud of the way my battalion responded. And then having got there, we fought in the south around uh, Basra, uh, a Shia insurgency, very, very violent, very fast moving. Um, and then we thought we were going home. And so we were already beginning the process of backloading the battalion. Um, and suddenly we were told we weren't going back. And I had to bring back um, a lot of people from the UK. I already had an, uh, bits of training happening. Uh, people had to come off exercise in the UK and get back to Iraq. You can imagine what that's like. People who'd gone home, back to their families, were now suddenly getting back on an aeroplane back to Iraq. And then to take them up the road um, to uh, just south of Fallujah and then be involved in a really very violent period. And within a matter of days, we'd, we'd taken quite a few casualties. And we had to think really hard about our tactics. Uh, we redesigned the way we operated. And I'm just incredibly proud of how we managed that. Then I went, that was Operation Brackenall to the Americans, Operation Phantom Fury. Um, and then we, I went back to Iraq as a chief of staff uh, for Richard Sheriff in 2006. For that, that was Operation Sinbad. And uh, the Basra operation, um, for me, was a very different challenge. The, the Black Watch was, had that physical human quality as a commanding officer in your warrior, in your TAC headquarters. Now, as the chief of staff, it was more of an intellectual challenge, designing a plan with Richard Sheriff. And the two of us together were a great team. We're great personal friends, and we trusted each other. And we, we designed the plan. Um, the brigade commander, James Everard, the commanding officers, people like Justin Majewski, were brought into the plan. And Tim Evans came in. And we, we, we worked as a team. And, and Richard was fantastic at instilling that leadership. He's a very charismatic character. We suffered, though, because the British were not at a political level brought into it, and it became a very uh, emotive period, and I think Richard Sheriff himself bore the brunt of that, and uh, I learned a lot from it. And mm. I, the principal lesson I took with me to Afghanistan as a brigade commander is that you must be nested within a fully agreed team, and that's why working to Carter, to Parker, to McChrystal, and then uh, with the British chain, chain of command back in the permanent joint headquarters was so vital to me. I should also mention that the other partner I had in my team was Lindy Cameron, who is now a very senior civil servant, a long, long career in uh, Department for International Development. But now she's in the Northern Ireland office. But you know, she, she's typical of that elite British civil service official who um, has that capacity to work as a team player. Um, I really enjoyed that experience. And she is the best of what uh, the British um, public service can achieve. Mm. Fantastic. And uh, we've got about five, five minutes or so left um, of the interview. And I'm just um, interested in perhaps the darkest part of your career or your life and what you learned from it as a leader. And then maybe lift us to a couple of high points and things you look back on and what you learned from that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think as a commander, you need to be mentally ready for the unexpected. And quite early on in my Black Watch tour, um, I deployed one of my companies over the river Euphrates and uh, the lead warrior was hit by a suicide bomb and three soldiers were killed and quite a few more were seriously wounded. And 
having to sort of absorb that mental shock, keep cool. You owe it to your battle group to keep people alive by staying calm and, and being infectiously calm at that moment. I think, you, you know, uh, panic and, and calmness are infectious. Yeah. And that's the job the commander brings to it. Yeah. Secondly, in Afghanistan, we had followed General McChrystal's wish to form partnerships with the Afghan security forces. We'd integrated our people into um, bases. We'd broken down the sort of them and us between uh, the British and the Afghan uh, military and police. And we were absolutely up for this. And then um, just as we got going with this, um, one of our Afghans turned his weapon on, on, on the Grenadier Guards, one of my battle groups, commanded by Roley Walker, and, and murdered five British soldiers, including the Regimental Sergeant Major. And it was a, it was a truly visceral moment. But uh, what, again, I was so proud of was the way uh, my men responded. They saw this as an example of why we should have been partnered earlier. Not a reason for giving up on partnering, but a, a very good example of why it was necessary to, to get uh, reform into the Afghan security forces. It was a very dark moment, uh, but it's one I think uh, we all drew strength from. I mean, as Nietzsche says, if it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger. And yeah. did kill five of my soldiers, but it, it meant that the rest of us drew huge strength from it. Yeah, no, very, very tough time. Positive. I mean, if, if, yeah, asking, some highlights. Let me let me let me end on with some light. I mean, I was really fortunate to uh, lead uh, the planning for the military security operation for the Olympics, and you know, what what I drew so much pride from was I think there is a kind of natural instinct within uh, the British society to be reluctant to use the military, but actually, when when eighteen thousand troops. Uh, were deployed for the Olympics. It was a fantastic experience. Um, they, they absolutely covered themselves in glory and they made sure the Olympics was a safe, happy event. And to be part of that was a source of huge pride to me. Yeah. And uh, let's end with um, a final top tip. And, and um, before that, a book you're reading, what, um, just clear, reading is one of your great loves, but what's a, a good leadership book that you'd recommend to others to read that's got some really good tips and advice that's relevant for today with the, uh, the pandemic that's going on and the uncertainty. Um, I think that it's important um, that you step back from the circumstances you're in and take a, a longer look at history. Um, I've just been reading John Bew's uh, Real Politique. John Bew is an interesting uh, thinker, the son of Professor Paul Bew, um, and he's uh, written on people that are different as Castlereagh and Clem Attlee. But his book on rail politic is something quite unfashionable in this country. We, we're not, as a liberal uh, Western democracy, taken with German words. But what he's really talking about is the, the art of statecraft. And it's something that I feel has been lost in this country in the last 10 years. It seems to me that um, we need to discover, rediscover how to do statecraft again. Um, the decade that's just passed has been uh, about disengagement and isolationism. The decade that was before was about uh, interventionism. Neither of those two things ended very well. I want to see a blended response where we have a global Britain and I'd like, as part of my organisation, to help in its design. Wow, thank you. And then your final top tip. Give us with a top tip. A yeah, give yourself a top tip. Yeah, I, I think give yourself um, some headspace. 
Um, it's back to your business about being uh, lazy. I think a little bit of laziness is uh, important. You need other things in your life beyond your work, and you need to give yourself time for that, and you need to be able to have that distance. And if, if you can't do other things, um, you, you'll lose that sense of focus. Great. Well, Major General James Cowan, uh, CBE, DSO, thank you very much indeed. Um, as CEO of the Halo Trust, I think they're very lucky to have you. And um, I've certainly found this fascinating. We could have chatted much longer, but James, thank you for that. Really enjoyed the session. And I wish you every success with what you're doing for humanitarian relief around the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.